So as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, it's good for us to think about some of the words we just sang. Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me. But the Son who died to save us rose that we should be free. And what we see on this table is a reminder of that glorious truth. The bread represents the body of Christ that was given for us. The cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us so that we could be set free and forgiven. That is good news. And the Apostle Peter, he also wrote about what Christ has done for us, and this is what Peter said. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now, in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God. And you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. Amen. Praise God. The Bible tells us on the night that Jesus gave himself up for us, he was with his disciples. And they were celebrating the Passover meal. And they had celebrated this meal before, but this time it was different because Jesus gave it a different meaning. During the meal, Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks. Then he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, Jesus took the cup. And again, he gave thanks. And then he gave the cup to his disciples and said, take and drink. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus was communicating to his disciples that he was taking the place of the Passover lamb, that he was offering his body as the sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. And we want you to know that you do not need to be a member of Stonebridge to participate with us. But scripture is clear that only those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ as the one who paid the penalty for their sin are to participate. 
So if you're here or watching online, we encourage you to continue on your journey with Christ and take this time to reflect on the meaning of the bread and the meaning of the juice. So with that in mind, let's have a time of silent prayer and reflection. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you paid a ransom to save us. And it wasn't with silver and gold, but it was with the precious blood of your Son. And because of that blood, we can be forgiven. We can be set free from our sin, from our guilt, from our shame. Thank you for dying for us. And if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ as the one who died for you, he's inviting you to come to him, to receive mercy and grace. And when we come to him, we become a new creation. The old passes away, and the new comes. We bring our praises, our prayers to you in the majestic name of Jesus who conquered sin and death. Amen. When you came in, you should have received a prepackaged cup. If any of you did not receive one, please raise your hand and we'll be happy to get you one. Does anyone need one? One over here, a couple here. Okay? Everybody have one. All right. Go ahead and peel back and pull out the wafer. Jesus said, this is my body. It was given for you. Take and eat. Jesus said, this is my blood which was shed for you. And though your sins are many, they all, they all can be washed away by the blood of Jesus. Take and drink. How can we say thanks for your amazing love? what you've done for us. Thank you for your body that was given for us, your blood that was shed for us, so that we might become new creations and experience forgiveness and new life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Robin. Good morning. My name is Roger Sapi, and I'm one of the elders. A quick announcement this morning. Today is our final day of the 
summer schedule for our kids' ministry. We finished up the, uh, those classes in the first uh, service. Next week, we'll be back to services, um, kids' classes for both services. In the first um, uh, service this morning, our elementary students put together um, these packets, which are called the Touch of Love Kits, for our partner at the Tandala Hospital in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it was um, through your generous donations during the June Bible Club um, uh, clubs that um, the funds were able to uh, put together for that. Um, what a wonderful blessing to our partners and the patients at the hospital. So thank you for your uh, donations and your support of that critical min ministry. Now, before I read from Matthew this morning, I'd like to open up in a time of prayer, if you bow your head with me. Lord, this morning we come before you with thankful hearts that you have called us out of darkness, and as we just celebrated in communion, you have forgiven us and invited us to spend eternity with you. As we sang this morning, we are a broken people in need of rescue. We are burdened by all that is going on in our nation and our world. Yet we know you are sovereign. You are the King, the all-powerful God, worthy of our praise and faithful to carry out all of your promises. So this morning we rest in you, knowing that in you we can find peace, hope, and healing amidst the chaos around us and in our hearts. This morning we also think about those in need healing at the Tandala Hospital, Please bring both physical and spiritual healing through your power to those at the hospital, and please protect the workers who are providing care and love for the patients there. We also lift up the fall ministry starting next week and ask that people of all ages will grow in their knowledge and love for you by participating in groups and classes this fall. Help us to come alongside each other and spur one another to take our next step with Jesus. This morning, we think of those in need of your mercy and your grace. We lift up little Willow as she faces the challenges of RSV, peace and comfort for Arlene Richardson, safety for Kathy Burgess's daughter and family, and others among us that are facing both health and financial challenges. We also lift up all of our students, parents, educators, as our children and our grandchildren return to school. We pray for safety, for wisdom, and a smooth transition. And we lift up Pastor Brandon as he delivers your message this morning from Matthew. May you open our hearts to hear your truth and leave here today committed to being the disciple you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. And now if you would stand with me as I read today's scripture, I'll be reading from Matthew We'll first start with Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll move over to Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And now Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. This is the word of God. You may be seated. 
Thank you, Roger. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to Matthew 5 as we get to start a new series this morning uh, through what is uh, no doubt the most famous collection of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and this collection of teachings is famous not just for Christians or, or people who've grown up in the church. Uh, really, th- these, are, these words are famous across uh, generations, across the globe, even believers and non-believers alike. I mean, who among us has not heard phrases like, blessed are the peacemakers, or you are the salt of the earth, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Or if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Or no one can serve two masters. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Judge not, lest you be judged. Or seek, and you will find. Or so whatever you wish someone would do to you, do also to them. All of those phrases all come from this sermon open before us. And and it's not just familiar words, though. There's a moral vision to the Sermon on the Mount. There's an ethical lifestyle that's on display here that likewise is known and celebrated uh, by both believers and non-believers. President Harry Truman is attributed as saying that, I do not believe there is a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And similarly, uh, the Hindu leader and pacifist Gandhi, uh, when he was asked, you know, what he thought would would solve the problems between Great Britain and India, uh, reportedly he took a Bible and turned to Matthew chapter 5 and said, When your country and mine shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved the problems not only of our countries, but those of the whole world. Like the moral vision of this sermon, it is memorable and it is powerful. It is beloved by so many through the ages. And yet, if we slow down and carefully consider Christ's words in this sermon, what we find actually and and quite often surprises us. Uh, It it, uh, catches us off guard, parts of this. Maybe even makes us a little uncomfortable at times. It's not what we always expect to find. And sometimes that's because, if we're honest, we want the values of the kingdom that's revealed in this sermon but we don't necessarily want the king who gives them to us. All right, we like the way of life that's described here, and we think maybe with with Truman and Gandhi that if we all just did this, we'd all be a lot happier and more peaceful, right? But then we're kind of surprised when we slow down and see that these are not just generic principles for peaceful living, but a very specific vision for God's kingdom and a call to surrender to him as king, to give him our, our loyalty. Or we, we take the Sermon on the Mount and we kind of make it about us. We use it for our own purposes, uh, to advance our own vision of the good life, or, or maybe our own definition of social or moral justice, 
But then we're surprised when some of the teaching doesn't really fit our particular vision. Uh, you know, we find ourselves having to either kind of cut out or paper over certain ethics uh, uh, that are here, but, but maybe aren't what we were thinking. Uh, maybe the teaching on divorce or, or lust or, or judgment. Again, we, we want the values of the kingdom, but we don't really want the king with them. And of course, the opposite is often also true. Sometimes we want the king, but we don't want his kingdom values, right? Uh, we want Jesus, but we don't necessarily want to live like Jesus. Uh, maybe it's because we're, we're looking for the kind of king who gets results and gets stuff done. He's not afraid to break a few eggs, knock some heads together, do what no one else will do to accomplish things, right? But then we, we read through this sermon and we're shocked to see this call for meekness and mercy and poverty of self, virtues that this world looks down on, but Christ both embodies and demands. Or maybe it's because we want a king who saves us, but doesn't actually expect anything from us, right? As long as he punches that ticket, we're free to live however we want. But then you know, we are, we're caught off guard by the high call to holiness in this sermon. Well, that doesn't make sense. Or maybe uh, it's just because as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, we find ourselves feeling guilty because we are utterly incapable of actually living this way. And so we've got to find a way to, to downplay it somehow, to, to soften the, the hard edges, to ignore the hard teachings, maybe even just to relegate the whole thing to another time and another people so it doesn't even apply to us. We want the king, but we don't want to walk in the way of his kingdom. And it's interesting, you know, when we lived in New England, it was the first temptation that was strongest in that more progressive culture. We want the kingdom, but not the king. We want the love and the peace but not the exclusivity of Christ. I think in the Midwest, the second temptation tends to be stronger for us. We want the king, but we're not sure we want the kingdom or the values of his kingdom. We want the power and safety that comes from having the king on our side, but not necessarily as interested in following his way so much as baptizing our own way. But wherever you're at, whatever temptation we find ourselves pulled to, what we must acknowledge and embrace is that you cannot divide the kingdom from the king. You cannot separate the master and his way. There is no following the king without living out his kingdom values, and there can be no kingdom living without submission to the authority of the king. This pastor and author Sinclair Ferguson says, living out the Sermon on the Mount can never be divorced from a right relationship with Jesus. Can never be divorced from a right relationship with Jesus. And so before we can say anything about the message of the sermon, the surprising way of Jesus and how to walk in it, we first have to reckon with the messenger. Before we can 
look and, and ask, what does this sermon teach us about life? We need to first consider, what does this sermon teach us about Christ? Who is he? How is he presented to us here? And how does that prepare us to take on board the teaching that we encounter in these pages? Because as we're going to see, living out the Sermon on the Mount means fundamentally bowing to the authority of Jesus. That's what it means. And so that's what I want to do this morning. Consider what, what do we learn about the preacher from his sermon in the Sermon on the Mount? Earlier, uh, Roger read for us what we might call the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount. The, the first two and the last two verses of this section of Matthew's gospel, which was kind of a strange scripture reading. I don't know if you were kind of thrown off by that, but it's, it's a little different. Um, and yet, that opening and that closing kind of create a framework around the sermon that helps us understand what's going on here. They, they clue us into the context uh, so that we can make better sense of, of what we read in between. And if there's one theme that stands out in both how the Sermon on the Mount opens and closes, not to mention in between, it's the authority of Jesus. It's the authority of Jesus. If you look again with me at Matthew 5, 1 through 2, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, notice the imagery here of, of the posture of Jesus' teaching. He goes up onto the mountainside and then sits down in order to teach. Now, that might seem like just some throwaway details as Matthew's ramping up the story. But if we think about that in the broader context of Matthew's gospel, that actually suggests a certain weightiness to what Jesus is about to say here. Uh, for instance, mountains are kind of a big deal in the Gospel of Matthew. Important things happen on them, like Jesus' temptation in Matthew 4, or the transfiguration in Matthew 17, or what's called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, or the Great Commission in Matthew 28. You get the picture. Mountains Kind of a big deal. Something important tends to happen on them. And then second, that posture of sitting. He sits down in order to teach. That also suggests a kind of authoritative teaching posture. Uh, later in Matthew, Jesus describes the Pharisees as sitting in Moses' seat. Like there's a certain authority to their teaching role. And even today in, in the Roman Catholic tradition, when, when the Pope is speaking authoritatively, he's said to be speaking ex cathedra, from the seat of his office. And so there's something significant about the posture Jesus takes. But then listen to the reaction of the, of the hearers when he's done. If you go to the end of the sermon, again, the last two verses. <clears throat> and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not like their scribes. From beginning to end, the Sermon on the Mount highlights Jesus' authority, his authority as king. And so, so what does that mean? What does that actually look like? And how, what do we do with that? 
How do we understand Christ's authority here? And, and what's at stake in whether or not we listen or obey? Well, we see Jesus' authority displayed in two ways through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew kind of highlights his authority in two ways. And the first is that Jesus is presented to us as a new Moses. Jesus is a new Moses. Uh, One of the remarkable ways that Matthew uh, makes Christ known to his readers is by showing us how Jesus relives ancient Israel's story. If you go back to the Old Testament and you read about Israel and when they become a nation in the book of Exodus uh, and and how they uh, just kind of follow that story, we see that Israel was God's special covenant people. In fact, God calls them my, my son in Exodus 4. Israel's my, my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may worship me. And, and God, as he rescues Israel from Egypt, he makes them into a sp- his special people. He makes a covenant with them. He gives them his law through his servant Moses that they might be his people and that God would be their God. But as you keep reading that Old Testament story, you find that, that Israel kind of follows in the pattern of, of uh, their father Adam in the garden, and they break their covenant with God. They, they disobey him. They end up bringing upon themselves the curses of that covenant. They fail their father. Matthew shows us, in contrast to both Adam and Israel, that Jesus is the faithful son who actually gets it right. Who, who does uh, what Israel was supposed to do and is what Israel was supposed to be to the point that, that much of the earlier chapters of Matthew kind of show Jesus reliving ancient Israel's story. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 2, you know, just as Israel sojourned in Egypt and then came out back to the promised land, so we find out that Jesus actually sojourns in Egypt for a time and then comes back to the promised land. Just as Israel's deliverer, Moses, was saved from, uh, as an infant from the murderous plot of this tyrannical king, uh, Pharaoh, in Exodus 1 and 2, so Jesus is saved from, saved from the exact same fate in Matthew 2, this time being King Herod. Just as Israel, uh, as the nation of Israel was born through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus inaugurates his ministry through the waters of baptism in Matthew 3. And after, you know, Israel comes through the Red Sea, just as they're tempted in the wilderness, they're tested in the wilderness for 40 years. So Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and yet succeeds where Israel failed. And so if you keep that comparison in mind of of Jesus and Israel's story, and you're reading through Matthew, and then you get to chapter 5, and the next thing he does is he goes up onto a mountain to give instruction about how to live as God's people, it is unmistakable that Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is a new Moses, giving a new law for how to live as God's people and members of his kingdom which is not necessarily a different law, but a new way of living out the vision of God's law from the Old Testament. When Jesus says later in this very sermon, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. 
And so he's not making the Old Testament obsolete or saying that it doesn't matter anymore. He's saying that the way we live it out now is different now that the kingdom of Christ is here. And we're going to explore just what in the world that means and looks like in the weeks ahead. But, but the first thing we see about Jesus' authority as the one who goes up on the mountainside, sits down to teach, he is teaching God's people as a new Moses, giving a new law take, that's fully in accord with that law of Moses, but now filtered through the kingdom of Christ. And yet, when we read the actual sermon itself, what we find is that Jesus, being a new Moses, is at the same time so much more than just a new Moses. When Moses taught God's people, he taught them as a prophet, as a prophet, the greatest prophet in many ways. But he was a prophet who said, thus says the Lord. He didn't speak on his own authority His authority came from God. Jesus does something different than what the prophets did. So if you look ahead uh, with me to the middle of chapter 5, in his teaching in verses 21 to 48, notice how Jesus introduces what he has to say about the proper way to live in God's kingdom. So for instance, verse 21 You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Or verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he does it again in 31 and 32, that same formula. You've heard it said, but I say to you, in 33 and 34, and 38 and 39, and 43 and 44. Jesus gives God's law, but not like the prophets did, saying, thus says the Lord. But instead, he speaks as one who has the very authority of God. I say to you. As Pastor Doug O'Donnell puts it, he opened his mouth not merely to speak from or about the Scriptures, but to claim authority of interpretation and application of them, and even fulfillment of them. And and that's what the crowds were talking about when he got done at the end of chapter 7, when they're marveling over how he teaches as one with authority. And not like their scribes. The scribes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in in early Judaism rarely taught out of their own authority. Not only were they deferring to the authority of Scripture, but they're often citing other rabbis and teachers and what they had to say. You know, if you you pick up a a Talmud and read some of the the Gemara portion of it where they just kind of have, it's like this lengthy debate. Well, Rabbi Solomon says this means this, but Rabbi Itzhak says this, but but Rabbi Nathan, you know, and it's just, they're always appealing to some other authority. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He speaks with his own authority as God. I mean, to put this into perspective, Imagine that I stand up here and say something like, you all have heard it said in Genesis 3, 
or in Ephesians 5. But I say to you, what would you think? This guy's nuts. He's crazy. How dare he take and make himself on the same authority or even above the authority of Scripture? That's crazy talk. That's what Jesus does here. He speaks with the very authority of God. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus speaks as the one who wrote the book, which kind of makes sense when you think about it, right? I mean, it's not without reason that the Gospel of John introduces him as the Word of God. He speaks with authority greater than any prophet. He spoke as God. And you see that divine authority illustrated a second way in how Jesus speaks with a unique insight into how we should relate to his heavenly Father. He teaches out of a special connection that he has with God. And so, for instance, he knows precisely how the Father works and what he expects, what he's looking for in his children. If you look at chapter 6, verse 1, be, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is giving us the inside track on who the Father is and what he's looking for. Or he teaches us how to pray to his heavenly Father in chapter 6 with the Lord's Prayer. He reveals the loving and compassionate heart of his Father. Chapter 7, verse 11. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Only Jesus fully knows the will and the heart of his Father because he is the eternal Son, one with the Father and the Spirit, and he speaks with authority as God. Third, we see that Jesus is more than a new Moses in how he presents himself as the judge of all humanity. This is kind of a, a big deal. Uh, listen to chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Prophets don't say things like that, right? No merely human prophet is going to stand before people and say, in the end, you all are going to stand before me, and I'm going to judge you as to whether or not you'll enjoy eternal life or not based on whether or not I know you. Like, no human person can say that. No only human person can say that. Jesus' vision for kingdom living is not, here's a bunch of principles, do these, but rather, I'm the king, bow before me. And then finally, we see his divine authority in the final verses of the sermon, 724 to 27, where he speaks as the one in whose words we find wisdom and life. 
Verse 24. Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Again, good teachers don't say things like that, right? That the whole course of your life depends on whether or not you obey my words. Only God can say something like that. Only God. Jesus is the king who speaks as God with his own authority. And so obeying the Sermon on the Mount begins by recognizing Jesus' authority as our king. So, so how do we respond to that? What do we do with that? How do we respond to Jesus' authority as king? Well, first, we have to get over our refusal to submit to anyone's authority other than our own. Like we talked about that last week when we looked at Psalm chapter 2. This, this, that for so many of us, the idea that God would rule over us feels you know, restrictive and oppressive. And we want our freedom, right? Freedom not necessarily to do what is good, but freedom to do what we want and what we think is going to fulfill us and satisfy us and help us be our true selves and, and, and so on and so forth. But as we saw last week, that, that freedom and life and meaning and purpose that we long for is not found by knocking every other would-be king off of the throne and taking it for ourselves, but in the joyful, glad surrender to the one who truly, rightfully deserves to sit on that throne. The one who is holy enough and wise enough and good enough and loving enough and gracious enough to actually carry out the responsibilities of that throne and accomplish God's plan for heaven and earth. And the Sermon on the Mount leaves no doubt that Jesus alone is that king. So what do we do? with his authority? How do we respond to it? When you look at this sermon and who Jesus is in it, there's really only one of two things that we can do in response. You can either take it or leave it. You can either take Jesus and his kingdom or leave it. What you cannot do when you read this is remain neutral, nor can you cherry-pick the parts that you want and leave, leave the ones you don't. You can't take Jesus without the Sermon on the Mount or take the Sermon on the Mount without Jesus. So you can take Jesus and his kingdom. And that's the response I would commend, right? You can take Jesus and his kingdom. You can recognize he is the king, that he has the authority. He's the one who rules from God's throne, who speaks to us as God, who calls us to himself, and who demands our allegiance. But before you can actually take up the way of his kingdom, you first have to take the king himself by faith. You know, it's interesting. Um, 
The Sermon on the Mount is a description of life in God's kingdom. It tells us a lot about what that life looks like. It doesn't tell us very much about how to enter that kingdom, how to become a child of the king. We need the rest of Matthew's gospel and the rest of the Bible to fill that picture out. And that's critical because you cannot follow the ways of the kingdom if you're not first reconciled to the king. And later in Matthew 19, Jesus and his disciples are talking about this, how somebody enters the kingdom. And as he tells them how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom, the disciples respond, uh, they protest really, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And, And notice that Jesus' answer is not, well, just keep the Sermon on the Mount, you'll be good. No, he agrees with them. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Entering the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not something we do on our own by keeping God's rules, by keeping the rules of the kingdom. Rather, it's through trusting Jesus and his work as our king and our savior. Another way to think about it, the gospel is good news. It's not good rules or good advice. It's not what we do for God to win his approval or to make it up to him for all the ways we've messed up. Rather, it's what God has done for us to deal with our sin and establish his kingdom through his son. It's what God did in giving us his son to live for our righteousness, to die for our sin, and to be raised for our eternal life. And so it's through faith in Christ, uh, recognizing, confessing, I can't do this. I've got nothing. It's through faith in Christ, who's done everything, that we become children of the king, that we enter his kingdom. And so first, we must take Jesus as our Savior and our King to turn from sin and trust Christ alone for forgiveness and new life. But if you take Jesus as Savior and King, then you are also called to follow the ways of his kingdom. You can't just take the King and leave the kingdom behind. The idea that that someone can trust Jesus and it not have any effect whatsoever on how they live is completely foreign to Scripture. We're called to follow Christ, not in order to pay Him back or make it up to Him, but out of love, out of gratitude, out of worship for who He is and all He's done, out of loyalty to Him as our King. We're called to follow him not out of our own effort or strength, because that's just going to make a mess, but out of the strength he supplies by his spirit through his grace. We're called to follow him not because we're saved by works. We're not. But we are saved for works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them, to walk in the surprising way of Christ with humility and and holiness, following him 
as faithful, joyful servants of his kingdom. And over the next couple of months, we're going to explore what that means, what that looks like from this sermon on the mount, what this looks like to follow Jesus as our king. Last, uh, last spring and summer, if you were with us, we taught, one of the things we talked about was how uh, what it means to be a disciple, that being a disciple means being a forgiven sinner who's learning the way of Jesus in community over time. Well, there's no greater summary of that way than this sermon before us. So we're going to explore that together and with God's help put that into practice together. So that, but that's the first option. You can take Jesus. and I would commend that option. But the other possible response to who Jesus is, according to this sermon, is to leave him, to reject him as king, uh, to disagree with his authority or with his version of the kingdom, perhaps even to deny that he exists and instead submit yourself to someone or something else. And sadly, many will choose that way. And, and if that's where you're at, I want you to know we are thrilled that you are here. You don't have to put on a show for us or pretend like you've got something that you don't. You don't have to pretend that your relationship with Jesus is anything other than what it is wherever that's at. And we want to know you and love you just the same. Though in our love for you, we do want to help you meet Jesus. And we would be unloving not to want that. But you can be honest about that. But if, if that's where you're at, if you leave Jesus, you don't recognize him as Savior or King, I do want you to know a couple of things. Uh, first, if you don't take Jesus, you cannot with integrity claim any part of his kingdom for your own purposes. That whole impulse, I want the kingdom but not the king, it doesn't work that way. With all due respect to Gandhi and Truman, they're dead wrong. That if you just apply the principles of this sermon, life will be better and we'll have world peace. You cannot separate the king from his kingdom. You can't have the kingdom without faith in and submission to the king. And then second, uh, a decision to leave Jesus' authority doesn't mean that you no longer have to answer to that authority. Right? I, can, I can reject him. I can, I can say, for instance, I'm leaving the authority of the state of Iowa. I no longer acknowledge it or receive it. But if I get a speeding ticket on the way home from church this morning, I'm still going to have to pay that. Because the if the authority is real, it doesn't matter what I think about it. We still have to answer to it. And so if what Jesus says about, if what Matthew says about Jesus is true, then what, what we see, what we read earlier from Matthew 7 about Jesus judging us in the end, that stands whether you recognize his authority or not. And so you can take Jesus or you can leave him, but you cannot stay neutral. You cannot stay neutral. C.S. Lewis, who, who spent his early adult life as an atheist, and he later came to Christ, he, he put this reality in an incredibly memorable way. 
He wrote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But you cannot stay neutral, not when you read what he says here. And so, living out the Sermon on the Mount means bowing to the authority of Jesus. That's the first thing we have to understand as we come into this, to these chapters. Take him or leave him, but I would plead with you to take him, to take him. There's no greater freedom. There's no greater security or satisfaction. There's no greater love than to know the salvation of Jesus and to walk in his way. That is what we were made to do. It's what he saves us to do. And he is worthy of that as our God and King. Let's pray. Let's ask him to help us receive and walk in his authority. Gracious Father, Lord, how marvelous is it that you would not simply rule us from on high, but reveal yourself to us. And that you, in your kindness, would send your Son to both accomplish your rule and to invite us into it, to do all that is necessary for us to be reconciled, and to supply all that you command from us through your Word and your Spirit. Lord, we praise you for that. And I pray that as we spend our days in this sermon over the next few months, Lord, that you would awaken our hearts to the beauty of Christ and to the power of his kingdom. That we would, in fact, be that light shining in the darkness, surrendering to Jesus our King, walking in the way of his kingdom, that you might receive the glory you deserve. We ask it in the name of Christ.